We're trying to do something here at New Community that many people say is impossible, and that is to try and bring groups of folks out in the city who people say would never get along to come together under the lordship of Jesus. Essential to our desire to be that kingdom community of bringing people together that otherwise would not out there is a church that desires to cross barriers among race, ethnicity, and class. When we in our church say that we want to be a reconciled, multi-ethnic church, we point directly to the cross. Because the cross reminds us that our reconciliation isn't just between us and God, but it's us and each other. This is not an add-on to new community. This is not something we just do on the side when we have time. This is at the core of what we believe Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, is to be a multi-ethnic reconciled community that reveals his kingdom's rule and reign. So we talk about it, perhaps not as often as we should, but we talk about it throughout the year and remind ourselves why we do what we do. Today we begin a summer-long sermon series called Voices. And basically, it's an opportunity for us to hear from various voices of gifted men and women in our church and out to come and share their hearts with us. And today, we have an opportunity to hear from Michael Emerson. Michael is becoming a great friend, and I consider it a huge privilege to be his pastor and friend. I've enjoyed my three, four-hour coffee sessions with him. I don't know if he enjoys it as much as I do, but I've enjoyed them as we've gotten to know each other. Most of all, I appreciate his heart for the church and why he does what he does. He loves Jesus. He loves his family. And he believes in the church and the church's ability to live into the gospel call to be a reconciled community of God. Michael, of course, has written a book called Divided by Faith, which was named the 2001 Distinguished Book of the Year. He currently serves as the provost of our denomination's University North Park. (laughs) No comment. We're glad you're here, though, North Parkers. He's married to Joni, and they have four children, Anthony, Josiah, Leah, and Sophia. Jenny and I had an opportunity with our three little ones to have dinner with them a couple weeks ago, and we're hanging out at their house. Now, Michael looks, looks like he's like 40-something. I said, your oldest son is in his mid-late 20s, and he's married. I said, how is that possible? And I said, I think there's only one conclusion. You guys got married when you were like 15 years old, which wasn't too far from truth. <laughs> Come on up, Michael. Give a big warm welcome to Michael Law Emerson, okay? Yeah. Michael, um, as you share with your church family here, I want to just pray for you, okay? Church, join me in praying for our brother. Father, we thank you so much for Michael. We thank you for his heart. We thank you for the call on his life and how it's impacted the church global. I know you've put a word in his heart. So now I just pray that you would make him your mouthpiece this morning. Father, may the words that he needs to speak be heard clearly and compellingly with conviction. Holy Spirit, I know you're grieved by what racism has done to this country and world abroad. May we hear truth. May we be people of the gospel who will be transformed as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you very much. Okay, so when uh, Pastor Peter asked if I would preach, I told him that I had preached once before, and uh, 200 people switched religions after that, so somehow he still wanted to take a chance. When they were over at our house, and I debated whether I should share this, but I just thought it was too funny, I had to share it, which is, I asked Jenny, his wife, if she had any recommendations if I'm going to preach like Pastor Peter, and I'm not kidding, without any hesitation, she said, wear tight shirts. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is so wrong, he said. <laughs> I actually have my tightest shirt on underneath here, but... <laughs> so, um, what I want to do is a little different, that's why I'm going to sit down just for a few minutes, is to start, because most of you don't know myself or my family, and just give you a little bit of testimony about how God has worked in our lives, and then to use that to set up what we'll talk about today. So, as we said, we, we, my wife and I have been married a long time. In fact, uh, we just this week celebrated our 30th anniversary. <laughs> But we actually grew up in the same little town together. Uh, So we've known each other since uh, elementary school, right? And this town is 2,000 people now. It was 1,700 people then. And um, I lived in the town, and she lived about seven miles out into the country. So I was called a city slicker, and she was something else. So we grew up, we graduated, we dated, we got married... And I actually was a student at Loyola here in Chicago. I just finished my sophomore year when we got married, and then so she moved here. She promptly cried every day for the first 30 days because of the size of the city versus the town that we had grown up in. Then I went on to graduate school in sociology to get the master's and PhD at the University of North Carolina. And then God uh, gave us basically our dream job, a job that was 30 miles from where we grew up place called St. John's University outside of a place called St. Cloud, Minnesota. Now, what's interesting about St. Cloud, Minnesota is it's the whitest metropolitan area in the United States. At that time, 99% white. And I always say that the 1% that weren't were students who were imported from Chicago and Minneapolis uh, to be there for a few years. So there we were. Uh, just starting our young family. We had one son. Uh, he was just a few months old when we moved there. Uh, where I taught was literally in a woods on a lake, and because it's in Minnesota, it gets really cold. So in the winter, uh, we had fish houses out on the lake, and, and um, this was a, a place where students and faculty would meet and, and have tea sitting out in the middle of a lake in the winter. How about that? just to give you a sense of how sort of remote this place was. Okay, so there we are. And I get invited. We actually um, become members of a covenant church because Joni's uh, uncle was a a deacon, an elder there, and they had invited us. And then he invited me to something called Promise Keepers, which was this men's-only movement back in the mid-'90s that was starting. At that time, it was only one event per year, and it was held in Colorado. So we got in the car, a bunch of us from church, drove the 800 miles, and attended. The way that this worked, you sat in this big football stadium, 50,000 plus, and it was a series of speakers. They would speak, and they had given you a form ahead of time, so after each person speaks, 
then you're supposed to write down what you heard God say to you. So Promise Keepers was built on these seven promises, one of which was about racial reconciliation, which was very radical at the time, but the others were things like being committed fathers, committed husbands, and so on. So as the people are going through and speaking, let's say that they were speaking about being a committed father, and then they say, well, what did you hear? And I started feeling like I no longer was in my body as these things were happening, but I would write down after how to be a committed father, what I learned was race in America grieves God. And every time someone spoke, it was always something about race. Even though, to be honest, you know, we were living our nice white lives and not thinking about race whatsoever. I describe it as my Pentecost moment where I felt literally like there were tongues of fire, like I was no longer in control I bought every single book I could find on race and religion. I stayed up for 72 hours straight. I read every single book. And when I had finished all those books, I closed them and I went to sleep. Even in my sleep, I felt a sense of, if you want to say dreams, visions, something was going to change. I sort of pondered on it for a day or two, and I knew I had to talk to Joni. Now, Joni was five months pregnant at the time with our third child, Leah, who's actually here today. And uh, I said, you're going to want to sit down for this. So I told her what had happened, and I said, this is what I hear God saying. I don't know all the details. I just know that this is what we're supposed to do. Our life is going to change, and it's going to change where from now on we're going to be the minority, racially, ethnically. Didn't know exactly what that meant. So here's what happened. Within two months, a job was posted asking as a new professor a different place in Minneapolis area, asking for someone who could teach, wouldn't you know it, exactly the things I teach. I knew I'd get this job, and I thought it was interesting that the school was where my wife had gone. So, of course, God's setting up so she would want me to get this job. Right? And I got the job. So then it was time to move, and what we thought was the school was in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, but in a nice white suburb, we'll just move there and continue our nice lives. And uh, this is when I said again through strong conviction, this is not what we're supposed to do. And we went back and forth, and we had issues, maritally, I'll say, as you can imagine. And here I'm saying we have to fundamentally change our life. We now have our third child born. This doesn't make any sense. So we have a realtor and they're showing us. This is really interesting. I started learning about race immediately. We said to the realtor, you need to show us neighborhoods where we're the minority racially. And this cool, suave realtor that we had basically just, you could see how nervous he got. Oh, I can't, well, I I can't do that. Uh, Whatever. So we fired him, got another. (laughs) And the same thing happened. So they said, well, if you want to identify neighborhoods, we can show you homes in those neighborhoods, right? So I identified neighborhoods. And we're going back and forth and feeling, we're not finding a place, we're feeling uncomfortable. And finally the realtor says to Joni, what is it that you are looking for in a house? And she says, think of where she grew up, I want to live in a farmhouse. So, okay, a farmhouse in a city, yeah, whatever. A house comes for sale in the black section of Minneapolis, and we go to look at it, 
And wouldn't you know, it's the one we bought. It was the original farmhouse before there was any city there. It's now completely surrounded by, you know, it's just a city block, but it's a farmhouse from the 1800s. So we had to admit maybe this was a sign from God, so we bought that house. Okay, there we go. Now we're into culture shock beyond belief. It's time to find church. We end up in an African-American church. um, And total, beyond culture shock at this point. Just everything is so different. Now it's time to send our children to school. Uh, Where are we going to send them to school? I worked with an African-American, it was a co-professor of mine, and he sent his children to a school in the section of town that we lived in. And it was the only religiously based school left in that part of the city. It was a Catholic uh, grammar school, but a 95% African-American school. So I thought, this is where God... Clear sense, once again, this is where God wants our children. Okay, so it's time to go visit there. We go visit there, always feeling very uncomfortable because... Hey, we're stepping over broken glass to get there. There's bars on the windows, but also because it's Catholic and we have less familiarity with Catholicism. What will this mean? What will our kids be learning? Okay. Well, turns out that the principal who is Catholic had grown up Baptist. So she used the language of Baptist when she was talking, and that really gave comfort to my wife. So it was enough to say when she was done speaking about the school, let's put the deposit down, $100.00. And we'll sign our oldest son up. So we go stand in line. We're standing there. My wife says, I got to go use the restroom. So she goes to the restroom. As soon as she goes into the restroom, somebody comes shrieking in that their cars, their windows had been broken, and they're screaming, and there's commotion and everything. And finally, somebody comes and takes her out, and they deal with it. Settles down. Then she comes back. Quiet. Doesn't know anything happened. I don't say anything. (laughs) Okay, lots of detail there, but what happens is that God gave us a call, kept revealing it step by step, and making things happen just enough that we could actually live in the call. It was never, never easy. Four years later, we start getting restless, like something's going to change, and I get an interview at Rice University down in Houston, Texas. We don't want to live in Houston, Texas. I remember they called and they said, we'd like to bring you for an interview. Can you see yourself living in Texas? And I just said, nope. And sorry, because we have some uh, of our friends from Texas here today. But So as I get offered the job, we're searching, we're trying to understand, are we supposed to do this? We didn't know if we should or shouldn't. We did something maybe that pastor you would say, don't do, but he said, okay, open up the Bible. And, and this is what it said. I worked at a place called Bethel University, okay? This is what it said. Leave Bethel and go to the place I show you. Okay, that's a clear call. (laughs) So we went to Texas. And what changed then is a world that we had become used to being in a black world. Suddenly we're in what is the most diverse county ethnically in the country of all different kinds of groups, right? Full of immigrants from everywhere. So it was a whole different reality of... And always when we're having our lives change, it's leading to ideas of what books to write and 
how to work with my graduate students, and so on. And I want to give you just a couple of examples of some of the things we learned. There's too many. I'll talk more. I might get a second chance in the fall, so I won't go into great detail. But if we could have the first slide, I want to show you. Uh, So this is the neighborhood that we lived in in Houston. And according to the census, 80% African-American, 16% Latino, 4% other. And mostly it was our family was the 4% other. Um, (laughs) Our children really were the only four white children in the neighborhood. Um, Okay, so one of the things that we find is that when you have neighborhoods like this, the property values go down. Okay, and they start learning why is that. And one of it is that uh, white folks don't live in neighborhoods like that. They do not choose neighborhoods like that. And usually if there are white folks, they will leave. Um, and this has just been a long-established pattern, researched very well. That lowers demand for housing, and that drives the price down. If you look in Chicago, people will say it's very expensive to live in Chicago. No, it's not. It's very expensive to live on the north side in certain neighborhoods. It's very, very cheap to live in most of Chicago. Um, okay, so let me, if you go to the next slide. All right, so in this house, we actually had it built, and we moved there in 2006, and that's how much we paid for the home. Then um, I had to, we had to go to Denmark for a year, and for a variety of reasons, we had to sell our house. So we were able to get someone to make an offer for $225,000. Okay, we'll sell it for that. Then, this is such an interesting way that our system is set up. Your house has to be appraised, and some official tells you what your house is actually worth. It doesn't matter what somebody says, they'll pay for it. And so they came in, they actually didn't come in, they just simply appraised our house without visiting it. And they said your house is worth 160,000. Therefore, you can't sell it for more than 160,000. So we could only sell it for 160,000, as you see. So our, our net gain in wealth was negative $113,000. I asked my graduate students, I said, is this just our our experience or is this going on? So they did an incredible project, which they've just recently got published, which is that they looked at the change in housing value in every single house sold in the last 10 years in Houston, the Houston metropolitan area. So if you go to the next slide, um, they they looked at from 2005 till last year. What are changing in housing values? What they did, if you'll go to the next slide, is that they used statistical magic. Don't have to understand what they did. I can verify that they did it right. Is that they can make the neighborhoods identical in terms of the quality of the schools, how far people have to commute to work, what the poverty rates are, and everything else. But the only difference is where these neighborhoods, they're looking at neighborhoods that are either 85% white, Hispanic, or black. And their question is, over that 10 years, if you bought a home in 2005 and were to sell it in 2015, did you gain wealth, lose wealth, what happened? All right, so this is it. Over that 10-year period, if you had a home in a white neighborhood, whether you're white, black, or Hispanic, you made about $82,000 on your home. It's a great wealth accumulator. If you lived in a Hispanic neighborhood, you lost $4,400. And if you're a black neighborhood, I don't know why it doesn't show, but you lost $26,100 on average. Big difference in how race impacts us no matter who we are individually. I'm a PhD white guy uh, 
who's working at a prestigious university, making good money, and so on and so forth. But I can't, that doesn't overcome the power of race by neighborhood. The way we have structured our society, that's the way that it happens. And no individual action overcomes that. So what the lesson is, of course, that we all learn without even talking about it, is don't move to certain neighborhoods. Right? That's the only way you can overcome it. So people, this only helps uh, white neighborhoods gain wealth because everybody tries to get into those neighborhoods because they're trying to avoid losing money on their homes too. All right. So I get asked this a lot. What would it take for us to overcome racial division, stratification, these kind of things that I'm talking about? What's the answer? How do we, how do, we do this? It seems really big, right? Well, believe it or not, one of the things we say is you've got to create churches like New Community that are committed to being multi-ethnic churches. For one, that starts breaking down boundaries. For two, it starts messing up with the system. So when we started studying churches, well over 90% of all churches were one race only. And this was in the late 90s. There's been a movement to create more churches, including New Community being planted during that time, to create more churches where we mess with the system and there are multiple groups worshiping together. So now we have 13% of our congregations across the nation that are multi-ethnic, multi-racial, but that means 87% are not. I'm going to talk way more about that on when the fall comes. What I want to do here is, and this is weird too, where God kept pushing me in this direction, so I said... I've got to go in this direction. That ultimately, um, it will take understanding God. That understanding that God wants to unleash his justice. Okay? So how are we going to let that justice be unleashed? That God wants to unleash healing. How will we do that? The answer is, not what we typically do. We might feel righteous indignation and we want to do something right away. I form an organization, I march, I campaign, I try to do something. The problem is then we're leading God rather than God leading us. Big difference. We're leading God rather than God leading us. Okay, so I want to focus on what I call living lives of faith. That when we have seen great change In history or in this country, it's usually because God comes upon a group of people and directs them, not the people themselves deciding, here's what we need to do. So let me just take a moment here, very quickly, what do we mean by faith? We talk about it all the time. If you will go to the next slide, please. We're fortunate that we have the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, and it starts with a very clear definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Well, that makes it pretty clear. Notice that there are two components here. Intellectual assent and trust put into action. So I like to use this example if I see a big, looping, giant roller coaster that turns you upside down and puts you at 60 miles an hour. I can assent intellectually that that's both thrilling and safe. But... 
faith and action, that second component is if I'm actually willing to get on it, put my life in the hands of the designers of this thing, and trust that I will end up both thrilled and safe at the end. Mother Teresa, towards the end of her life, she was asked uh, an important question. She said, look back at your life and your attempts to deal with poverty. Do you feel you were successful? And you may have heard this again without hesitation. She said, as Christians, we're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. So that you should, that's the question to ask. Was I faithful? Whether it's successful or not, whether it made a difference, that's up to God. I think Mother Teresa knows what she's talking about. Indeed. So if we look at faith, it's this assurance that what is promised will happen. Whether it happens in our lifetime, whether it happens later, it's going to happen. So I have a hero in the faith. Uh, His name is Moses. I think it's kind of fun to have some heroes in the faith. And I want to share you a little bit about Moses' life because it really illustrates the fundamental lessons that we have here. And by the way, I'm going to give you the seven fundamental lessons for making real change and living lives of faith. So we know from the book of uh, Exodus that we have uh, Moses gets adopted into royalty. Not just any royalty though, right? He is the son or the grandson of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is the most powerful figure on the face of the earth at his time. So when we say Moses had everything the world had to offer, it couldn't be said more directly. He truly had everything the world had to offer. But he saw a deep injustice, if you remember, when he found out who his people were and saw them being mistreated. He acted out, didn't really wait on God. He acted out, killed somebody, and then had to flee from his own family because he was going to be put to death. Interesting, when you follow what had happened after he had to flee and leave his life behind, he was able to craft himself a nice middle-class life, basically as a sheep herder. He got married, he had children. So he had a very nice, comfortable life. He had come to realize and see that this was a good thing. But then we might know, this is, of course, the famous story of the burning bush. He's just out one day working, and he sees this burning bush. And... Uh, Let's put up the next slide. This is what God says. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So, now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So here it is. Nice middle class life. God comes and says, uh, i got a little task for you. Free an entire people from the most powerful kingdom on earth. And by the way, that, the kingdom that's trying to kill you. Can you imagine? I mean, I don't think we can imagine that. But I'll tell you what, Moses reacted like I think most of us would. If you could put up the next thing. He says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt? So God tells him. He responds. And Moses says in the next slide, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? So then God tells him what to say if that were to happen. 
All right, next slide. So Moses says, uh, pardon your servant, Lord. I, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've been speaking to me right here. But, uh, you know, I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. Okay? He's doubting himself, undoubtedly. Maybe he didn't speak that well. So uh, God comes and says, here's what I'll do for you. Right? I can provide you. You got brother Aaron out there. He speaks really well, so he can go with you and on. Okay, next slide. Uh, pardon your servant again, Lord, but uh, could you please, just gets real direct now, just, could you send someone else to do it? Okay, now, uh, I, 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 it's interesting because at this point now, I think it's four times he's objected, it says that God got angry. So God helped him there, but at this point, enough is enough, okay? So he finally accepts that this is a call. And he makes a key switch here. He turns the focus off of himself and what he can and cannot do and realizes if it's God, God can do anything. So I'm just going to have to trust in God. He knows he's not enough in himself. It's a big switch. Me to God. Okay. That's the key switch here. Now, I want us to imagine him coming back to the people he knew and having to tell them about this. So, first has to go to his father-in-law, Jethro, and tell him, hey, I got to take your daughter and your grandkids, and here's what we're going to be doing. But it's interesting because he, he didn't lie, but he didn't tell the truth either. He said, I want to go visit my people in Egypt and see how they're doing. That's all he told him. So, his father-in-law, to his credit, said, go and wished him well. Okay. So now imagine his wife is Zipporah, love that name, Zipporah, and the children, and they're getting packed up, and he's going to tell his wife what this is about. I imagine the conversation like this. Uh, hon, babe, uh, sweet potato pie to my little buttercup? Uh, well, I, I was talking with God the other day, and God said, funny guy, this God, what he said was, you know, what I'm supposed to do is go and free the Israelites from the mighty Egyptians, or something like that, and... Well, I might have heard God wrong, and no, that's what he said. So I can imagine Zipporah at this point, you know, thinking that Moses had flipped a lid, a french fry short of a Happy Meal, a tool wrench short of a tool set, whatever. It makes no sense at all, right? I think Zipporah's faith here is greatest of all because she accepts ultimately that she sees in her husband that he really... Something really has changed. And in fact, as they're on the journey, Moses almost dies. And it says that God is going to take Moses' life because there's some unrepentant sin there. And Zipporah steps in and takes care of it. If you want to know what she did, you'll, you have to read it. It's, it's, uh, I don't want to describe it in a family setting. Okay. We know the rest of the story, even though we're going to make it light of it in terms of going over it so quickly. But incredible miracles somewhat surprisingly, continued resistance from the people he's trying to free, saying, what are you doing? You're messing with our life. At least we know we have some food. Things like that. So he has to do that. This Maybe the tightest connection between a human being and God that we've ever seen. Just this incredible faith that he had, knowing God would do things like allow them to walk across a sea. Leading hundreds of thousands of people on this adventure through the wilderness for 40 years 
And again, this faith and insurance, I do not get to go to the promised land. He realized he would not, but he knew his people would. Let's just think about this. So he had transformed from a man who had the world in his hand, right? Everything the world had to offer, both from his life of royalty and wealth and from his nice middle-class life. And he had to step out on faith to take a crazy next step that didn't make any sense. He had transformed from the person who multiple times we saw objected and said why he can't do it to one of the greatest leaders of all time. What's key is he didn't do this on his own willpower. He did it because God led him. Okay, so I want us to think about this now. If we go on to the next slide. Seven principles for living lives of faith. If we're going to overcome racial division, hatred, any kind of thing. By the way, I got a text here from my colleagues at North Park. This is pretty unbelievable, but this is the kind of things that go on in the world, right? So the head of our denominations, the Covenant Church in Kenya, was shot to death two days ago by terrorists who were specifically looking for Christians, pulled off of a bus. What's also amazing is they were the, the Muslims on the bus, more would have died. They surrounded the Christians that were on the bus and said, you will have to shoot us. So this just happened, yeah, a day and a half ago in, in Kenya. <laughs> Human, we cannot do it on our own, right? We cannot. Okay, let's look at the first principle. Stand with an open posture. Nothing more important because nothing else can happen. We have to stand as Christians like this. God is always at work. I'm actually pulling a little bit of this. If you've ever read Henry Blackaby, uh, what's that book? Experiencing God. So God's always at work. He's always pursuing relationship with us. By ourselves opening up, we allow that relationship to develop. All right? And of course, a relationship with God is key because anyone that you have a relationship with, that's a quality relationship, it's pretty simple. You spend time together. You get to know each other. You share things that you wouldn't share with others. That's what God's looking for. So as we're doing that, as we're doing that, then God will invite us to be part of his work. Part of God's work huge part of God's work is he is redeeming us from all the craziness that we see in our city, in our country, and in our world. God wants justice. God wants to bring us healing and health. So he will invite us. Now, how does God speak? My uh, youngest children will say, how do you hear God speak? How do you, how would you know if God's talking to you? It's a great question. So it seems that in the modern day, God speaks through the Bible Leave Bethel and go to the land I will show you. Usually not that clear, but he'll speak to you through the Bible. Through prayer. A lot of times you'll get a sense in prayer of what you are to do. Through circumstances. Things just line up. And key is through the church body. Others will start saying things to you. And you'll get the same message. Even from people who are not connected. And you will know. Sometimes God will speak to you through dreams and visions. Okay, Just three quick examples here. So Noah, it says that Noah was a righteous man who walked faithfully with God before God spoke to him. 
Noah was pursuing a relationship with God. God pursued a relationship with Noah. That opened it up so that he could do this crazy thing of build a big boat in his backyard and wait for the flood. David, as we know, it says, continually was a man after God's own heart. He messed up so many times, but his posture was always open. Ruth chose to follow not her own nation's God, but the Lord of hosts. And that meant having to leave her people and change, and then God provided and gave her direction, and ultimately she's in the line of David and Jesus. Pretty amazing. Here's the key. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Don't ask God, what is your will for my life? Ask God, what is your will? You see the difference? Don't ask, what is the will for my life? That's a focus on me and what I can do. Ask, what is your will? And as we come to understand God's will, he will allow us to be involved in the work that God is doing. Very different posture. Okay, second, God speaks to us, but not always directly. So not only will we hear many times directly, but other times if we're in a relationship, if we're in a church body, perhaps Pastor Peter will get a call from God, and he'll share it with us. And it's up to us to decide, do we collectively go with it, or do we resist? Because we can say, I didn't hear God tell me that. So that's a a fine line, but it's important that biblically, there's so many times where people who did not get a direct call still had faith that someone close to them did have a call, and then they made the call actually happen in their support. So that's very key. Third principle. God usually shows us just one step. That's the hard, a very hard thing, that God will not... He's going to ask you to change your life big time, but not show you the whole plan. It's just going to show you where to go next. You know, Abraham is the great example here. Abraham, leave your nation and go where? Just go. He wasn't told where he's even going. So he had to tell his family, hey, pack up, we're going. Where are we going? Don't know. That's how often how God works. One step at a time. Faithful in that step, then the next step can happen and he can show it. Also, because I think God usually knows we couldn't handle multiple steps at once. We wouldn't be ready for it. Usually we would just say no. Fourth, what God invites us to do often seems illogical, impossible, or unexplainable. Again, let's think about Noah there. Um, build this massive boat that can hold two of every kind. Um, I wouldn't want to have to tell my family what I'm doing. If you've ever seen the uh, modern version of the film, uh, what's his name, Steve Carroll, I think, plays Noah, get, get a sense of how ridiculous it is to, to have to build this boat when there's no flood whatsoever and everything's fine and people are going on with their life and you're investing your, what little money you have into making the boat. It's, when it's a God call, it's a God-sized call, it won't make sense. That you need to know. It won't make sense. How about Abraham when he has to take Isaac? He's told, take your one and only son that you waited forever to have and kill him. Go and burn him. Sacrifice him. He does it. He's told one step, do it. He does it. And of course, God doesn't make him go through with it, but it's the test that Abraham has true faith 
He realizes it's illogical, but he does it anyway. Okay, fifth step, moment of truth. The crisis of faith. When you get a call from God, just like we saw with Moses, you will have a crisis of faith where you say, am I crazy? I can't do this. This is going to mean too many changes. I'm not up to it. I can't be hearing this correctly. This is the absolute key because if it's, it's like when they are trying to break the sound barrier with uh, airplanes. They could not break the sound barrier because as they approached the sound barrier, the planes would start shaking violently and the pilots would pull back because they didn't want to blow up, right? Then we had a guy named Chuck Yeager who either didn't value his life or what, but he decided, I'm going through it. He goes through it, he goes, and the plane is shaking, but as soon as he breaks the sound barrier, perfect calm, and there's nothing. So you just have to go through the shakes, and then it's a whole different reality on the other side. That's the way it is here. For most people, they'll get to this point, get experience the shakes, and stop. What God's calling us to do is to trust that the shakes will end, that you can get through it. Sixth. Be ready for identity changes. If you look, when people get called in the Bible, every time they're called to change who they are. And this goes so much against our sort of narrative of the U.S. today, which is that we have to find our authentic self, that we have to figure out who we are, and that's who we are. But a Christian, a follower of God, sometimes will have to be six people over their lifetime. God transforms us each time for whatever it is the work he has for us at that time. So we have to be willing to adopt that perspective that we can be transformed and that we are willing to take on new identities. And then finally, if we can get through these six, we get seventh one. We experience life and God more abundantly cannot tell you when you live these lives and those of you who have, you know you never want to live any other way than to follow God. It's an incredible journey. There's a comedian, Mark Lowry, a Christian comedian actually. He says, you know, here's life. It's got its up and downs. And God says, I come to give you life more abundantly. (laughs) So you'll have higher highs and lower lows. Not really the point. The point is That abundant life is promised if we walk in faith. All right. Can we go to the next slide? Let's land this plane. I was talking with Pastor Peter. He says, you know, usually we think about sermons as we take off, we have a flight, and then we got to land it. So I'm going to land it. When we trust God, when we put our faith into action... That is when God really works. That's when you will stand by in amazement and say, I can't even believe this is happening. There's no way this is me. And that's exactly the point. There's no way it's us. There's no way that this congregation should be able to raise $1.5 million. There's no way that all of us that have pledged should be able to step out and give. And we, I remember the Ed and Jenny saying, when they tell us about their amazing pledge, they're scared. See, they're going through that shakes now, but they're willing to trust God here that somehow, some way, the pledge they've made, God will really provide. It's an amazing thing. All right, so it's really pretty simple, and it goes back to the Garden of Eden. 
God outlines in his word who we are supposed to be, how we're supposed to live, and we're going to have amazing lives. And then the devil comes along and he says, don't believe that. Right? It's a lie meant to keep you from happiness, from security, from whatever you think it is you want or need. The devil does confusion, delusion, intrusion, divide, distort, destroy. This is what the devil spends his time doing. Now, if we insist on, insist on having faith, what I think I observe the devil says is, okay, then I want you to have a timid faith, one that's small, one that's contained, one that does not change the world. Let's make it personal and about you and about what God can do for your personal life and maybe for your family. It's weird to end this way, but I want to say, what does the devil want? And you'll see why in a second. What the devil wants for you is anything but to join God in his work. What the devil wants is for you to live a life of mediocrity that has no impact for Christ. What the devil wants is for you to pursue a comfortable, middle-class existence full of nice stuff. What the devil wants is for you to spend your time doing what you think is right and just in your own eyes rather than waiting on God to lead you. What the devil wants is for you to focus on getting a good job, a nice education, make some money, buy yourself a big wide screen, and watch your life away. What the devil wants is for you to insist on a happy, safe, secure American life full of temporary pleasures until you die in your lakeside rocking chair. God has a passion that we do not waste our lives as individuals, as families, as new community, as a body of believers. That we do not accept living lives of mediocrity. That we believe that God can do the impossible. That God can overcome divisions and inequalities that have existed in our country from the beginning. That God really will not tolerate that continuing and he's waiting on us to use us to overcome. Only by living lives of faith will we get to the place of justice and righteousness. That is our calling. That's why God has placed us here. Uh, let's, let's end in prayer. Father, lives of faith are uh, scary and risky, and our culture tells us to spend our time doing other things. But lives of faith are what transform Societies They can f- lead to the freeing of an entire people that were enslaved, that were facing injustice. They can f- lead to a healing of life in America. They can lead to a healing of the breaking apart of this global world. You, Lord, truly, it's not a simple answer. It's the most brave answer we can come forward with. Lives of faith. Thank you, Father. Amen. So we are going to have a time of offering, and I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. And while we do that, I will lead us in a short offering prayer. Lord, we thank you that you provide for us as a people and as a congregation. Let us open up our hands now and share. Use this offering today for your glory and only your glory. Amen.